The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show and happy Solar Eclipse Day. Hope you enjoyed uh, this amazing uh, astronomical event, celestial event. I got I to gotta admit something. I'm Ed Chung. I'm the Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress, sitting in for Leslie today. I just got to say this. I think I was expecting something different or something a lot grander. It, it, we're in DC, so we're not in the in the exact path of this uh, eclipse. But I was expecting it to be much darker outside, and I was expecting, you know, not that I would look up ever at the sun, but just that you could see something. But um, uh, I don't mean to dampen the parade or rain on anybody's parade here. But um, glad we experienced it. Glad we got through this. Um, and so. Um, Hope you all had a good solar eclipse experience. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, other current events that are happening, uh, a White House staff shakeup, as well as the continuing aftermath of Charlottesville. So if you want to be part, if you want to be part of the conversation, uh, you can call us at one eight 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 six Leslie. That's one eight 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 six five three seven five four three. You can also follow the show at on Twitter at uh, Leslie Marshall. Uh, follow me as well at Ed Chung Tweets. That's E-D-C-H-U-N-G Tweets. In the second half of the show, we're going to be talking with Lisa Sharon Harper, a senior fellow at the Auburn Theological Seminary, who is one of the clergy who participated in the nonviolent demonstration against the neo-Nazis and white supremacists who demonstrated in Charlotte about a week ago. Uh, Lisa and also my colleague, LaShawn Warren, who leads the faith and progressive policy team at the Center for American Progress will be discussing how the religious and faith communities are responding to Charlottesville. Uh, but first, we are uh, going to be talking about a couple of issues here. Uh, I'm joined by two journalists who report on current events. Uh, Kira Lerner is a political reporter for Think Progress, covering a wide range of issues from voting rights to criminal justice. And Sam Fullwood, also of Think Progress, analyzes the influence of national politics and domestic politics on communities of color across the United States. Thanks to both of you for being on The Leslie Marshall Show. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, Ed. So we had, uh, as usual, a Friday breaking news bomb. Uh, sorry, I, sh I should not use that <laughs> word in our context here. Um, uh, a media um, bomb, if you will. And we had another person, another senior advisor to the president uh, leave the White House. Kira, what do we know about the reasons for Bannon's exit or departure, however we want to characterize it now? Yeah, so like you said, we had this breaking news on Friday, which, knock on wood, is the most recent breaking news event we've had in a few days. Um, we might be due for another one soon. Um, but yeah, the announcement was that Bannon will be leaving the White House, um, which kind of this announcement highlights the two competing factions within the White House that we've seen really at war within the White House for a while now. 
Um, so when John Kelly came in uh, to the White House a few weeks ago, his goal was to shake things up. And one of his primary goals was that he wanted to see Bannon leave. And I think Bannon himself didn't expect to last that long at the White House. He kind of saw himself as this conservative, nationalistic figure that helped Trump get elected as his campaign manager for the last few months of his campaign. He was going to lead Trump into the White House, uh, shake things up, and then leave a path for other people to continue his work without him there so he could go back to Breitbart and lead this crusade from the outside. Um, So according to Bannon, this had been a move that he had been anticipating. According to reporting by the New York Times, uh, the announcement was delayed after the events in Charlottesville last week um, so that his departure wouldn't look like a direct reaction to Charlottesville. But but Sam, when we're talking about Bannon, we're talking about kind of uh, the epitome of what a lot of not even progressives, but mainstream America uh, was worried about when they saw Trump coming into the White House, somebody who took this fringe far right section of America and gave it voice and gave the president's voice to this uh, to to this uh, to this group. And so when you see Bannon leave, what was Bannon's actual you know role in shaping the Trump agenda? Uh, because it's not a title that necessarily chief strategist isn't a title that necessarily it's a made up. It's a made up title that uh, that that they came up with to give him uh, a seat at the table in the White House and to be close enough uh, to the Oval Office that, as one person said, he sort of wandered in and out like a ghost whispering into um, into Trump's ear. You know, it's it, I don't know whether uh, Bannon's presence or departure is going to fundamentally change anything in the White House. Um, if he wants to still influence um uh, the president's thinking he can do that just as well from outside as he can from inside. Uh, he may not have the physical presence. That is, he may not be there in the room talking to the president. But uh, the president is going to be reading everything that comes out of Breitbart. Uh, and he's going to absorb that. And if he chooses uh, to act, act on those things, he will. And I happen to think that uh, the the real influence was in uh, showing Trump the way toward white nationalism as an electoral uh, force in his campaign. That was the real value of, um, of Bannon. And if, if that is something that Trump's going to internalize, it's still going to be there. And you all both working at Think Progress are very familiar with Breitbart generally. And I think when Bannon left the White House, his tweet or some of his communication said, now I have all of my tools in front of me. Kira, what do you think about where he is now back in kind of a familiar seat um, and how he can shape the agenda going forward uh, while not directly in the White House, but from outside of it. Yeah, I mean, you also have to remember that he's not the only representative of Breitbart that's in the White House right now. He might be leaving to head back to the uh, conservative website, but he's leaving behind Sebastian Gorka, who's one of uh, the chief White House advisors and a strategist on national security. So that far right Breitbart mentality is not going anywhere. And I think with having Gorka in the White House and uh, Bannon outside working at Breitbart, I think they actually might even have more power 
power to kind of work together on both sides and push the legislative agenda that they've wanted to see all along. And Kira, you mentioned before about um, the role of John Kelly, uh, the new chief of staff, or relatively new chief of staff, I guess in this administration, he might be a veteran now, but Sam, what does this say about how John Kelly is running the White House? Are we seeing more discipline? Is this kind of this ideological battle that we're talking about? What's happening in there? I want to make the argument that really what you see in the White House, the, the Kelly faction uh, and the Breitbart faction, if we can, if we're going to be sort of gross in in, in describing it as such, is really uh, uh, a metaphorical fight within the soul of the Republican Party. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later in, in a subsequent section. But I think that what you're seeing is the Republicans are trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be. Um, Kelly represents a more um, traditional, at least in terms of the Trump campaign, and um, Breitbart slash Bannon represents uh, a more nationalistic, a, a more appealing to uh, white fears and anxieties. Um, and if they're going to get anything done through Congress, which is where all of the, the real work is done, they're going to have to appeal to some more moderate factions of the Republican Party to be able to pass their agenda. And that's what Kelly is attempting to do. He's trying to make the administration successful by being able to have a legislative uh, record. And that is totally antithetical to the to the Breitbart formula of let's just uh, let's just blow up everything, start all over and see what happens. This does come at a very unique time because you have the president coming out last weekend, you know, making multiple statements about Charlottesville and then settling on one that uh, that supported or, or that spoke favorably or you know, didn't condemn white nationalists. Um, but then he dismisses the person who many associate with white nationalism in the White House. So talking about current events, there were things that happened this weekend as well, kind of as an aftermath um, in Baltimore, for example, or other places, um, sorry, Boston, for example, and other places where rallies were being planned. What happened in Boston here for those of you, for those of the listening audience that um, haven't caught that news? Yes. Yeah, so in Boston on Saturday, um, a group of conservatives had been planning what they were calling a free speech rally. Um, they claimed that it was not going to be a repeat of what happened in Charlottesville, and it was just going to be a demonstration to um, show their First Amendment rights. Um, but what actually ended up happening was that tens of thousands of counter protesters uh, showed up and really like dwarfed the size of the free speech rally. Um, I think the number is something like 40,000 people showed up on the streets in downtown Boston. Um, and for the most part, the protest was very peaceful. Um, I think there were something like 30 or 33 arrests, um, mostly people just disturbing the peace. There were um, a few incidents of people throwing things at, pol at police officers. Um, but for the most part, the speakers at the free speech rally um, did their part. They spoke on a stage and there were far more protesters on the street. And luckily, we did not see a repeat of Charlottesville. So in addition to that, all across the country, we're seeing other cities and other places, uh, most recently the, uh, the University of Texas at Austin, uh, removing Confederate statues from um, premises and so forth. So um, we're going to talk about this here in one second. And Sam, you also have an article that or a column that you wrote on Think Progress about your evolution in thinking about 
uh, Confederate monuments and, and so forth. But just to give a little bit of preview right before we go to break, um, you know, what have you seen in terms of the ro- role of cities in pushing um, the, these removals? What I think has happened is that um, primarily within uh, white America, there is a debate about just how much racism they are willing to tolerate. And I think that the Confederate monuments going back uh, maybe two years ago to the Dylan Roof shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, has sparked a debate um, that is almost exclusively among white Americans about uh, how do they memorialize history and what does that history really represent. And uh, I think for the first time in our country, we're coming to grips with some real uh, fundamental truths that the Civil War was not this noble cause that a lot of people seem to want to believe particularly people who grew up in the South, as I did. Um, and and now there's a reckoning, and this reckoning is taking place in cities that are becoming more diverse. They have diverse leadership. Richmond, which has a black mayor, uh, is debating whether they want to take them down. Baltimore, which has a black mayor, decided in the middle of the night to take their statues down. The University of Tennis of uh, uh, Texas took down statues. And these debates are taking place all across the country in places where, you know, just as as many as maybe three years ago uh, would not have been uh, thought about. So that leaves us in a good position to talk about uh, this a little bit more and the continuing debate, not only in communities, but also individuals who may be uh, evolving on their stance on Confederate monuments. You're listening to uh, The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after this break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Ed Chung sitting in for Leslie today. If you want to be part of the conversation, please call in at 1-888-6-LESLIE. That's 1-888-653-7543. We're talking with Kira Lerner and Sam Fullwood from Think Progress. And Sam, we uh, teased a little bit of your article that uh, came out last week. And it's an article that talks about your evolution in thinking um, regarding Confederate monuments. And everybody should go to Think Progress and check that out. But for uh, for us now here, uh, what how was that evolution for you? What, where'd you come from? Where'd you go? Going back to the Dylan Roof uh, shooting, there was a lot of talk about taking down uh, the Confederate flag over South Carolina and removing the monuments. And I have argued and have argued for about the last two years in print and in public appearances um, that the monuments should stay up as a historical marker. Uh, my belief was that most Americans have a very poor understanding of why those monuments, uh, why the flag has flown in the first place. And I thought that if people learn their the real American history, that, that most of the Confederate monuments were put up uh, in direct reaction to gains by African Americans post-Civil uh, uh, Rights period and post-Reconstruction, uh, uh, that, that quite frankly, white Americans would be embarrassed to to celebrate those those icons and I wanted that sense of embarrassment to to be a part of our historical record well when the president of the United States comes out and makes his statements last week it it it, it hit me that some people are embarrassed proof uh, and and the president is nothing will embarrass him and that if if the force of guilt and embarrassment doesn't move people 
to understand the plight of uh, formerly uh, incarcerated or formerly uh, slaves or any kind of marginalized group, there's no point in having it, that those monuments only represent uh, a, a sign of uh, white nationalism and racism, and therefore they should come down. And, and you're a black man who grew, who uh, you went to North Carolina. Your North Carolina is right, home. Right, And right. so, I mean, this is something that... I am old enough to remember separate drinking fountains, believe it or wow. not. Uh, and I marginally remember that. And so this is real history to me, and I believe that that... The, the understanding of real history is being lost um, when we try to take away the totems of that. But if people are stubbornly refusing to learn, then they only are rallying around them, as you saw in Charlottesville, rallying around for a lost cause. Then I don't. I think it's indefensible to support uh, those monuments. And Kira, speaking of not being embarrassed about it, there are uh, people who are who have white nationalist beliefs and hold on to them, uh, who are doing the exact opposite, and they're actually being forceful and putting their views out front. Uh, you have an article that's that's out um, about this um, that people are running, more people are running for office who hold these views. Yeah, I published a story this morning um, pointing out that white supremacists are running for office as Republicans. And I asked the question, will the party stay silent or are they going to do anything about this? Um, one of the examples I used is a man named Augustus Sol Invictus. Uh, his given name is Austin Gillespie, but he um, has decided that he is now going to run for the Senate in Florida. Um, he's challenging Bill Nelson. Um, under this this pseudonym that he's taken on. Um, and he's running as a Republican. He's run for office in the past, last year as a Libertarian, but it's no surprise that he has decided this year that the Republican Party should and might embrace him. Um, so I called the Florida GOP multiple times for comment. They did not. They declined to comment. Um, so this is a question that I will be looking at, and I think a lot of people should be asking go going forward. Um, there are mechanisms in place for the party to kind of exclude people like this, like David Duke has been excluded in the past from the ballot. Um, but he was allowed to run for Senate last year as a Republican on the same ticket as Donald Trump. So, And we saw him all over, David Duke, all over Twitter, social media, regular media uh, in response to this. And it gives them a profile, a higher profile than um, what they would have otherwise. My thanks to Kira Lerner and Sam Fullwood from Think Progress. You can check out their work out there. And this is an important discussion that we're going to be continuing after the break uh, here on the Leslie Marshall Show. So uh, stay tuned after that. This is Ed Chung, and we'll be right back. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Ed Chuck, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. 
Uh, the number here is 1-888-6LESLIE, 1-888-654-7543. We're continuing our discussion of the aftermath of Charlottesville, and I'm joined now by Reverend Lisa Sharon Harper, a senior fellow at the Auburn Theological Seminary. Lisa was formerly with Sojourners Magazine, and it was also the founding executive director of New York Faith and Justice. Lisa, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Really, really happy to be here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And also with us in studio is LaShawn Warren, my colleague. She's a theologian, public interest attorney, and vice president of, of the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at the Center for American Progress. And her work focuses on the intersection of faith, values, ethics, law, and activism. LaShawn, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Lisa, you were one of the clergy invited by the United Church of Christ to join the nonviolent uh, resistance effort uh, that was condemning racist ideology uh, during the Charlottesville Unite the Right um, event. Mm -hmm. And so you had a firsthand experience down there, and you also approached this from your role as a minister. Can you describe for the listening audience just kind of sights and sounds, what you experienced, and also yeah. your participation with other clergy members in this. Wow. Woo. I'll tell you what, it's actually, it took me a few days to um, recover, maybe even all of last week. Uh, I spent the first few days after getting back home um, crying. I literally cried about five separate times in the course of Sunday um, when I was home by myself finally and safe in my apartment. Um, that was when I felt safe enough to let it go. And I didn't realize, and I've been in these situations before. I mean, Ferguson, um, I went to Baltimore in the midst of, of the craziness in order to do some training with, uh, with actually with Southern Baptist pastors in, in Baltimore who wanted to know how do we engage. And you were talking about Baltimore after Freddie Gray. That's yeah. exactly right, after Freddie Gray. Um, but this was different. This was another level. Um, this was, this was battle. Um, there was a, well, first of all, when we got there on Friday night, um, I was met by Seth Whispleway, who was one of the lead organizers of the event through Congregate Seaville. And Seth Whispleway um, told me upon arrival that this was serious and that the police officers um, had actually not um, had said that they that they did not have um, the right to be on the street and they would not support them if they were. Which is a different reaction that you probably had either in Ferguson or Baltimore. Well, it's funny because in Ferguson, at least they actually gave us the space. And they, they you know, uh, we were at gunpoint and certainly and we had military there. But but they responded in order to create space for people to protest here. The police did not even protect. And so there was a, a very clear sense from the organizing and the uh, training ahead of time that if we stepped onto the street, we could die. If we stepped onto the street during the time when the Unite the Right rally was happening, we could be beaten, we could be injured, or we could die, either at the hands of police officers or the white nationalists. That was what was clear, because we didn't know where either of them stood in terms of their where they stood in relationship to this this protest. So um, Friday night, we started with um, with a vigil, a mass prayer service. and it was it was striking because they had it set up very similar to the um, civil rights 
uh, mass meetings back in the 60s and 50s. They had big speakers that projected out from the church onto the pavement because they knew that there were going to be more people than the church could hold, and there was. People were literally lining the seats, lining the walls rather, inside the church and sitting down along the along the the back walls. And then people were also in the overflow outside on the lawns. Across the street from us and down maybe about a block or two was the Unite the Right um, rally around um, General Lee's uh, statue. And they had the torches and they were in khaki and white shirts. And I hadn't seen them yet. We just knew they were there. And we knew we were here. We were going to be preparing to go out and hold space hold space for the truth that we are all, all of us made in the image of God that next day. And so uh, Cornell West spoke and opened up for Tracy Blackman, who gave probably, I think, honestly, probably the, the sermon of her life. It was amazing, a treatise, really, on the situation where we are right now. And this was on Friday night where you had we had this meeting, a service, uh, however you want to call yes, it. Yes, that's exactly right. It's Friday night. Um, it's late, actually. I, I don't remember what time we started. I think we started around 7. And um, it, it wasn't until about 9.30 that we got out. I was asked to give the final charge before we go. And, and my charge to the group was that we have to remember our ancestors because our ancestors fought without the coverage of the law, without the protection of the law. They fought against laws and, and legal apparatus that were dead set on their demise, and yet they found a way to stand. And so it was in that context then that right after I sat down that we found out that the church had been surrounded um, mm. by 300 white supremacists who had marched over from the Lee statue to the church in order to intimidate us. At that point, I began to have flashbacks of, and you know, their historical memory, because I wasn't there, but it's the historical memory of churches that were bombed mm. and lit on fire while people were inside during the civil rights movement. Um, or when people left, they were beaten and lynched, right? So I'm, I'm literally, I'm remembering this, and yet we're so fired up that, that there, was a, there was a sense that God is with us. We don't need to worry, we just need to hang tight. So we stayed in. Um, uh, we one person actually went out. There was a woman who I'm sure, several people actually went out when we thought it was safe, and that woman got maced um, by the by the white nationalists who were outside. We held people back a little longer. We were only allowing people to go out through one entrance, and then finally or exit. Finally, we were able to let most of the people go. And so the next day, mm -hmm. so that was that was just Friday night, what you were talking about. That was there. just Friday night. The next day, describe for us what what happened then, because if that yeah. was just kind of the precursor to it, I, I can't imagine what you were experiencing during uh, Saturday. Well, Friday night's um, mass meeting and service had about a thousand people. I, I don't I don't know. All I know is that that the that sanctuary was completely packed, and like I said, there was overflow outside. It looked like a thousand people to me. Um, however many the capacity holds, that's what it was, and, and a few hundred more. Um, Friday, I didn't really expect, quite honestly, a lot of people to show up because it was 6 a.m. in the morning when, when the service began. But when, we, when I walked into the sanctuary um, following Tracy Blackman, because we kind of went over together, there was a packed sanctuary at 6 a.m. Uh, to pray for the day. 
and it was people lining the rafters um, up in the balcony as well as and there was not an empty seat in on the um, floor level Tracy again gave us a really I think the final charge which was the charge to love she said she mentioned this in the middle of her her um, speech or sermon the night before but she really pounded it that morning that there's no way no way that we can win this battle using weapons or using violence this battle must be won by love it is the only way even theologically the only way to fight what we are running up against which actually i don't believe is hate i believe it's deep deep fear the only way scripturally to fight fear is through love love is the opposite of fear we are talking with uh reverend lisa sharon harper and lashawn warren about the faith response to charlottesville and we're uh the description of what you're going through right now uh, t- walk us through the images that we have seen of faith leaders walking through the streets of charlottesville and what's going on at that time so um tracy spoke and gave us that final charge and um the organist you know went went off um, dun, 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 you know and <laughs> and we literally had a had a praise time there um, but then we heard that we were also there were people outside who were white nationalists who were there to intimidate us. And so there was a little bit more music than was intended um, during that time. And finally, we realized we had to regroup. Um, The group came together just before going on the street. There were two different groups of clergy that day. One group actually was, and it was a larger group, was going out to a separate location, not Emancipation Park, in order to hold witness in another park. Um, and, And they gave testimonies throughout the day and prayed and those kinds of things in order to hold space there. But there was another group that had been trained for direct um, civil disobedience and nonviolent civil disobedience. And that group, when it all, when everybody else had left, was only about maybe 80 people. And we had hoped to have four times that many. Mm. There were four times the number of white nationalists expected on the streets that day. So there were four times the white nationalists expected to show up, showed up. One quarter of the clergy expected Mm showed up. So we had to regroup and see what are we going to do here. Um, It came down to this, that we are called to hold space. And I have to say, I kind of shuddered in my boots. I I didn't have boots on, you know what I mean, my (laughs) shoes. Um, I shuddered and I I stopped. I really was not sure I was going to do this. And I wasn't sure for a few reasons, but the most important thing is that I had one of those come to Jesus moments, like we'd like to say. Um, And in that moment, I sat down, I got quiet, and I said, God, please give me a word because I really could not come back here. And the word that I heard was, be present. And that's all I needed. And that led to that iconic march that that was going out. Walking out onto the street. Yeah, and LaShawn, for for the response that we've seen to Charlottesville, not only at the time, but afterwards, We've seen the faith community respond in different ways. And so give us a little sense of what, what you and your role in interacting with faith communities have seen um, and what their, uh, what the response of not only clergy, but also lay people um, has been um, 
on on and jeez, I was about to say on many sides. Um, uh, please <laughs> forgive me for that, but I mean from from across the spectrum. So there has been a wide sweeping response to what happened in in Charlottesville, and I would say the faith community has really stepped up at least some in the faith community. I will backtrack and talk about the president's evangelical advisory council, which I think needs some level of discussion. So with the the faith leaders, there have been a number who have called to join Take Them Down, the Take Them Down campaign, which is a campaign that's geared towards taking down Confederate monuments across the country. Um, they've also been engaged in prayer vigils, uh, marches, uh, they poured, I, I guess I should back up and say, the the faith community as a whole, though not monolithic, is it's been very clear that they're not con they're not conflicted on this issue. It's a moral issue and it's antithetical to Christian values and Christian faith. And so you saw an outpouring of clergy at the Boston March, for example, where the counter protesters outnumbered the um, First Amendment um, marchers. And so there is a deep and grave concern about what is going on in this country. And I believe that religious leaders are stepping up to the plate to give a moral voice, um, a prophetic voice to this time that we find ourselves in. Um, there's also a website. There's There's been a whole uh, campaign that's been launched, uh, Be a Righteous Resister, and there's a whole campaign where clergy can sign up to become more active in response to what we're seeing going on in our country. We've seen a response from uh, business leaders who were on uh, the president's um, economic council or business council, um, and which led to the dis um, disbanding of that group because so many people were leaving. We haven't seen the similar type of mass um, uh, defection, if you will, or, or um, resignation from the president's um, faith council. Um, why is that? Um, do you see? Now we should give credit to where credit is due. There was one pastor mm -hmm. who did um, stand up and say that he was leaving that council, but. So far, not a lot. What What's the reason behind that, you think? So why don't I back up and just talk a little bit about what the response has been from the advisory committee, the Evangelical Advisory Council for the president. So President Bernard, um, who is a mega pastor in New York, he did resign on Friday in response to comments that were made by President Trump. But there were generally three different types of responses from the council. Some of the members of the council actually defended the indefensible. Um, they defended President Trump's comments, um, and that's hard to do, and particularly in light of the fact that it conflicts with uh, foundational principles of Christianity. So the second, um, the second response was that members they actually they condemned the 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 uh, rally itself. And then finally, there were some, the majority of whom did, they were silent. They said nothing. Yeah, and Reverend Harper, I mean, what's what's your response as somebody who is a, cler a clergy member um, to this to this kind of silence by inaction, if you will, to mm -hmm. uh, to the president's um, response to Charlottesville. To clarify, I'm in the process of being ordained, so I don't want to claim something that I don't sure. I don't have yet. I'm I'm working towards it, but I think that I've actually witnessed among evangelicals in the top ranks of evangelicalism, there have been many many phone calls over the last week, conference calls with among leaders, and I think there's a, a coming to Jesus moment for them, in a way that I have not experienced before. 
Um, there's an openness to being led by people of color because I think they finally understand that they don't get it. Um, and they haven't, they've failed in the past. In fact, on one call, several people I heard say, we have, we have failed. Um, in that moment when I went out onto the street, I felt like I was having to pick up my cross. And I think that the evangelical church in particular, but the church across the country has to decide what, what is its cross. The cross is about loss. The cross is about facing the reality that we have something to lose. And what they have to lose is money and people. And the number one reason why pastors don't speak up on justice is because they are worried about losing money and people. So what we need to do is we need to ask, what does it look like for the church to pick up its cross in these days? And, and that's really interesting that you put it that way, because, you know, we're looking at a lot of the consequences of this. And so, you know, the consequences of inaction is something that I think uh, we have to everybody has to struggle with, but also the morality of this particular issue. Thanks so much uh, for being on. We're going to be right back. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. All right, welcome back. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Ed Chunk sitting in for Leslie today. And we've been talking with... Uh, Two people, uh, both LaShawn Warren and, uh, well, LaShawn, let's go straight to you first. You want to, we want to kind of pick up on the point right before the break about the difference between the business council and the faith council and their response to the president's message. And, and you want to talk about what that, what the differences and similarities are. So as you know, the president's business council was disbanded because there was a massive exodus in response to some of the comments that he made. But I think there, there has been a call for the Evangelical Advisory Council to disband as well. But I think it's important for people to know that there are two different types of bodies with two different types of roles. I would say first, the Evangelical Council was formed um, in order to provide guidance for Trump's campaign. So by nature, they're pretty political and they would be supporters aligned with him. And so they would probably not be eager to criticize him. And so you saw no criticism of him in this entire situation. Um, and then second, with the, the second consideration, I would say faith leaders, they play a different role than business leaders. They are ministers and they are counselors who by their very profession believe in the redemption of, of people, no matter how morally reprehensible they might be. So I think that that is something to keep in mind. And for faith leaders, they answer to a higher power, you know, to, they answer to God. And so religious leaders, on the other hand, they answer to stakeholders and they're a lot more sensitive to outside pressure. So business leaders, business leaders. Yeah. yeah. And, and Lisa Harper, um, in terms of just what you're seeing and what you're going to look for kind of going forward from here, what are you telling people that you work with or in your communities about things to, uh, you know, be able to look out for or how to approach this going forward? Well, I think that there's there's three major things we need to be doing. One, we need to lament. We need to actually take time to feel the sadness and the grief of, of what we are witnessing is true of America, that we are deeply divided for good reason. Two, we need to listen to each other. We need to listen deeply um, and and with intention to, to come to a place of repentance. And by repent, I mean turn and walk another direction. There are lots of ways to walk that other direction, but one of them in particular is to pay attention. What are the policies that the white nationalist community is, is pushing for? We need to push against those. There's a declaration called the Theological Declaration of Charlottesville that's coming up that I want you to know is coming out and sign when it does. And we're going to have to leave it at that. Thank you all for joining, joining us. This has been the Leslie Marshall Show. Remember that this is an issue that will keep on going and that we have to pay attention to. Uh, Leslie will be back soon and uh, it's been great 
happy total eclipse day 